The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Happy Friday, and thanks for joining us on The Takeout. This week, we're getting another perspective on just how much COVID-19 has impacted everyone here on Beacon Hill in the process of legislating over the past year. It has been a year now since COVID arrived in the Bay State, and it's been around 11 months since the State House was sealed off by the Speaker and Senate President. This has, of course, impacted lawmakers, staff, even the curious public interested in getting a peek at how things work, or citizens who used to trundle into the State House to tell their story at a committee hearing. This week, we hear about the ins and outs of lobbying for legislation what it's like to be a lobbyist, keeping your finger on the pulse of what's happening, but from a physical distance during COVID-19. Our guest is Ben Fierro, a partner at Lynch and Fierro. Ben's a 40-year veteran of the Beacon Hill lobbying world, an industry built on face-to-face interactions in a place, in a place the Statehouse built upon face-to-face interactions. He talks with us about why 2020 was one of his most challenging but successful years, the outlook for what things will be like after COVID, and his take on Speaker Ronald Mariano's push to develop guidelines for how grassroots advocacy coalitions operate at the State House. Ben Fierro joins us now in conversation with Matt Murphy of the State House News Service. Well, thank you, Ben, for uh, joining us. I know this is a busy time of the year, the legislature uh, gearing up to get going in their new two-year session. And I just want to start by asking you, where are you right now? Well, I'm working from my home uh, in uh, Ipswich, Massachusetts. Uh, I have not worked from our office in Boston. The last day I worked from there was March the 12th, 2020, which was also the last day I was in the State House. And that was two days after the governor had, of course, declared the state of emergency. My wife implored me to stay home, don't take the train. Uh, But I had a meeting at the State House about the housing choices bill, which was pretty important. Uh, And uh, and so that's when I went to the State House. And other than checking on the mail and hopefully finding a few checks uh, when I uh, arrive at the office, that's it, you know, uh, without being able to meet with legislators, staff, or regulators in person, there's really not much of a reason to uh, to come to Boston. Sure. Well, that was the last time a lot of people were in the State House. That was right around the time that uh, then Speaker Robert DeLeo and Senate President Karen Spilka announced that they were uh, closing uh, the State House, the People's House, uh, to the general public. Uh, we, the media, have been allowed back in the building and have been in there from time to time. Uh, legislators uh, in smaller numbers uh, show up from time to time, but it's really been uh, not the same for the past year. And that's some of uh, what we're going to talk about uh, here today. Uh, what would you normally be doing on a Thursday in the first week of February? I would probably be in the State House, uh, stopping by legislators' office hoping to catch them 
more likely talking with their staff, uh, inquiring as to uh, when they think hearings would begin. Um, have they begun to review legislation, uh, potentially setting up meetings in the coming weeks? And specifically, I'd probably be talking about the budget because as you know, Matt, the governor just filed the fiscal 22 budget. And so we start the budget process all over again. So, so again, trying to get the lay of the land, when, when a committee is going to be meeting, uh, uh, you know, what's the gossip on uh, who's likely to chair what committee and what the leadership appointments, because we're waiting on that, uh, and then beginning advocacy on the budget. Sure. And of course, none of that has actually uh, changed. A lot of this still going on. Uh, we are gossiping about who might be in line for which chairmanships. Uh, the governor has filed House One. Uh, the House would uh, go next in that process. And uh, after a, a year in which calendars were kind of turned upside down, we are expecting a more a normal process this year with the House most likely proposing a budget uh, in April. Uh, so what does it look like now for you doing the things you used to do in person, stocking the halls of the State House uh, from home? Um, you know, Matt, <clears throat> believe it or not, I'm starting my 40th year uh, lobbying the State House. And uh, 2020 was the most, both the most difficult, the most challenging, and in some ways most successful year that I ever had. Um, and it was incredibly challenging for the reasons that you're alluding to, which was that I couldn't be there in person. I couldn't work with legislators and staff, couldn't work with colleagues, right? See colleagues. You're there in the building every day. You know that a, a big part of this business is the interaction that lobbyists have with colleagues and staff, even you folks at Statehouse News Service, uh, as we sort of trade information, trade gossip. Um, you know, there's a um, collegial aspect to this work that I think so many of us enjoy, right? We enjoy seeing each other. We enjoy the interactions and we share something. We share an interest, hopefully a passion for public policy and lawmaking, um, right? That's, uh, if that's not only our business, it's probably also our hobby. Uh, we all like to talk about politics. We all like to talk about these issues. And it's been so isolating and more difficult to do that. Um, uh, uh, and then trying to you know, influence that process, of course, is so much more difficult from home. If I, if I can tell you a little story, after the uh, Senate President and the Speaker closed the building, <clears throat> uh, I was talking to a friend and they said to me, well, you're gonna have nothing to do for the next several months. <laughs> um, you won't have any work to do. Well, you know, that lasted maybe two days. Why? Because the usual order of business that I had, and what I mean by that is, you know, with my various clients, right, they all introduce legislation or are interested in bills and we're working on that. That's sort of the regular order of business. Well, that all got set aside. Suddenly it was all COVID all the time. So I had a whole new, uh, uh, you know, work agenda, which is dealing with all of the impacts of COVID on the various clients that you know our firm represents. A perfect example, of course, is the home building industry, uh, which we represent, and a concern about uh, shutting down that industry and construction and so on. But I would also add to that, uh, as a matter of fact, we represent nurses, we represent psychologists, we represent uh, uh, substance abuse treatment programs, mental health and group homes, 
all of that, they were all affected by this pandemic. Suddenly, all of our work was around that. Now, how did we do that since we couldn't be in the building? It meant Zoom, and I didn't know what Zoom was a year ago this time. Now I often have three Zooms a day, sitting at my desk all day long doing one Zoom after another. It meant calling people, emails. Um, you know, I, I sort of feel bad for those in this industry, in this profession, who are relatively new to this, because you know, for those of us who've been around, you know, we've developed the relationships <clears throat> uh, over the years where we can reach out to those legislators and staff and you know, hopefully they respond to us. But if you're relatively new and haven't developed those relationships, you know, you're calling the state house. Well, as you know, Matt, there's no one there. Staff is working from home. There's no legislators there. You send an email, you hope it gets returned. Um, extremely challenging. Um, yet I found that most legislators and most staff, you know, recognize that as they began to adjust to this new way of working. And certainly on the administrative side, in terms of working with the various agencies of state government and departments, you know, it took a while for them to adjust like all of us. But as we got into months two, three, four, it just became the way to, to work. It was the way to try to address the agenda. And then interestingly, if you don't mind me mentioning, when we got near the end of 2020 and we had these various conference committees, suddenly we were pivoting back to policy and to the regular legislation. We had the healthcare bill, the transportation bill, the climate bill, the economic development bill. Suddenly these were back in play at the end of the session where now it's not so much all pandemic, but now it's back to the issues you know, the past two years. Sure. You know, you bring up a, an interesting point. I mean, we've all learned to transition to Zooms and uh, calls and text messages when maybe we used to run into each other in the halls and talk in person. Uh, you know, it made me uh, wonder, uh, as I've uh, talked to people recently about what it's been like the past year, and, you know, depending on who you ask, they're either working from home or uh, living at work, but it's all the same place. And I'm wondering, have you found that lawmakers are easier or harder to find now that uh, you know, they're expected to be on their phones, but it's also easier to ignore that incoming call than it is uh, to dodge someone that you see walking towards you in the hallway? Oh, Matt, uh, it's always better to be there in person. Um, and yes, uh, certainly when legislators are now dealing with all these calls, all these emails, um, you know, you hope that they get back to your call at some point. So, uh, um, uh, you know, of course, at the State House, often, and it's interesting over the years, right, we'll schedule appointments for clients <clears throat> with a legislator, and um, they drive into Boston, they go through the hassle of traffic when there was traffic, uh, and parking, which is expensive, uh, come to the State House, give up a day at work or whatever, and then that legislator is called to a hearing or called to a meeting, and they end up not meeting with the legislator. Uh, and that's just often how it is which is why so many of us are in the building on a regular basis. Why? Because we know that sometimes it's just better to stop in, right? Just stop in the office and hopefully, you know, catch the staff, catch the legislator if he has a moment, if she has a moment. Um, uh, you know, that's always, that's always worked better. Um, so I guess to your point, lobbying is more difficult now that it's remote rather than in person. 
You mentioned some of your clients. I'm looking at your roster here, according to the Secretary of State's website, uh, your firm representing the American Nurses Association, the Association for Behavioral Health Care, the Disability Law Center, uh, the Home Builders and Remodelers Association of Massachusetts. So clearly uh, the pandemic has touched uh, the, the associations and groups you represent, uh, some of the legislative priorities, you mentioned housing choice, uh, that uh, hitting uh, one of your clients uh, particularly uh, squarely. Uh, but you know, I, I'm also uh, wondering, uh, as the pandemic has took over the focus of the legislature and a lot of the uh, normal bills that you might be lobbying on, the normal issues uh, took a backseat to pandemic, uh, issues, COVID response, vaccines, and, and other topics. Uh, have you found that uh, lobbying services, yours or others uh, in the industry that you know, have become more in demand? Or are people less willing to pay for this service at this point in time when they know it's uh, all about the pandemic uh, and then it could be some time before the legislature gets around uh, to looking at some of these uh, more uh, ordinary issues, if you will? Oh, I think I think clients have realized that they need legislative agents, executive agents more than ever, exactly because of the fact that the state house is closed. It's not easy to have the access to go in to meet with legislators. Um, the experience, the contacts, the relationships, the knowledge that all of the lobbyists have, the folks that you know, the, I mean, the professionals who are in the building every day, I, I think we are actually more in demand but that sort of goes to where I started this conversation when I said that a friend said, oh, you'll have nothing to do, right? Because the sense that, well, all the regular legislation was gonna be set aside, then it was all COVID. Um, now we've adjusted the, to the fact that we're gonna still be operating like this for many, many more months. Your guess is as good as mine, but I would think at least for half this year, uh, we're gonna continue to operate sort of remotely. So um, the groups and all of the interests on Beacon Hill, from teachers unions to the environmental lobby to you know you name it um, they still want to advance public policy issues um, and so they're going to have to work with this new system if you will and I think you know they need us but the other thing I would say about the policy and the irony was that the pandemic ended up advancing a lot of legislation that had been sitting around for years and couldn't get any traction and I'll mention two issues to you that ended up being part of the healthcare bill. One of which was, of course, telehealth, uh, an incredibly important issue, uh, one that <clears throat> I've been working on for a number of years, particularly relative to behavioral health, psychiatric and psychology and, and, and those kinds of services. We've been talking and legislation's been introduced at least for, oh, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, a lot of discussion, didn't move anywhere. The governor does it by an executive order people realized the world didn't come to an end. In fact, it was useful, can save money, can bring greater access. Now it's part of the, the healthcare bill that ultimately gets enacted by the legislature. Another example is the scope of practice for nurses. Advanced practice nurses have been trying for years to pass legislation. We're one of the few states in the entire nation that doesn't have a broader scope of practice for advanced practice nurses. That legislation, again, a decade or more, couldn't move forward. The governor by executive order does it. People realize it works, that the public 
patients are getting good quality care quicker at less cost. Now, finally, in the health care bill, we're able to get that done. Um, so two examples, and I'm sure other lobbyists and other groups can give you other examples. Of course, I mentioned the housing choice legislation. That's been around for at least three years. Never could get through the House, couldn't get to the Senate, and so on. Um, <clears throat> part of an economic development bill reintroduced by the governor, and a, and a recognition, if I can say, Matt, that housing, particularly all that we went through last year in 2020, from George Floyd to the pandemic, I think people came to realize that housing is a social justice and public health imperative. And I think that sort of helped finally get that, you know, over the, over the goal line. So to me, that's kind of an interesting thing that happened, that we had to address the, the, the implications of COVID. And through that, longstanding public policy matters finally were able to advance. This is, of course, a bill filing season, uh, the deadline for timely filed legislation coming up uh, this month. I imagine you must be busy texting and emailing, trying to get legislators to uh, file uh, legislation on behalf of uh, your clients. What have you found uh, amongst lawmakers? Are they uh, eager to get back uh, at the uh, at the normal rhythm of legislating, or are they still wrapped up in uh, the the COVID world that we've been living in the past eleven months? Um, I think they're definitely ready to resume sort of the normal activities. Um, I've had legislators reach out to me who we've worked with before, um, uh, you know, with their own on their own initiative, saying, "Do you want these bills to be filed?" You know, we've worked on these for years. Uh, we're hoping to advance them. Uh, the other interesting thing is some of the new legislators who are, you know, they're excited. They have a lot of enthusiasm, right? They're elected for the first time. They want to advance policy. And um, we've begun conversations with some of the new legislators who are very interested in ideas and issues and legislation that they might be able to file for the first time. You know, when the deadline was uh, uh, back in January, and uh, we didn't know it was gonna be extended, uh, you know, our firm, as I'm sure most of the folks who you know been doing this for a long time, they didn't wait for the deadline. Um, they've reached out beforehand. So with a little bit more time, I think we have what, February 19th uh, is the deadline. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see more, but I absolutely, I think people are ready to, to move forward on those issues that didn't uh, advance in the last legislative session. As you know, part of the problem was <clears throat> the inability to have in-person public hearings. Uh, many of the committees held hearings on bills um, and largely it was just a day where you could file written testimony. I certainly hope that this year the committees will have public hearings on legislation you know, by Zoom or some other platform where uh, folks can actually see the legislators be seen and you know, give oral testimony because that's really important, um, believe it or not. Uh, especially again, with a lot of new legislators uh, and we're gonna see the committees change a little bit, right? We're gonna see some new chairs. We're gonna see makeup of the committees change. Those public hearings, especially in the first year of the two year session is an opportunity for them to learn about issues and to ask questions. And you just, you just can't do that if all you have is folks just filing written testimony. 
Do you know of any in-person meetings that are happening at all or any lawmakers taking distanced meetings with lobbyists or advocacy groups? Uh, and, and if not, do you think uh, that interpersonal uh, in facing uh, interactions will come back? Or do you think a Zoom in some ways is, is here to stay for your profession? I, I'm not personally aware of any legislator meeting with, um, with folks in person. Um, there'll be a place for Zoom in all of our lives, um, you know, forever, it seems to me. There's certain advantages to it, obviously, and efficiencies to it. Um, the fact that, you know, people don't have to spend an hour and a half or something driving to Boston um, is certainly helpful. And I think particularly dealing with um, uh, state government in terms of the agencies and departments, um, I can see there uh, a much greater use in the future of Zoom meetings. Uh, where agency, departmental uh, staff, you know, meet in a conference room and meet via Zoom, go to meeting, name your platform uh, with stakeholders on issues because it's 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 pretty efficient. Um, but in terms of the state house, uh, I, I think we'll will return to largely in-person uh, meetings. Um, it, it's just I think the nature of the business. Uh, you know, legislators, elected officials. You know, they like people. They're out there campaigning, meeting people. It's important to them. Uh, that connection is essential, it seems to me. Uh, and I think that that will, um, we'll see a return to that at some point. But not on the state government side. I, I think they're gonna find a lot of efficiencies by doing these meetings. You know, whether it's DEP, uh, uh, DOT, you know, name your agency, uh, which frequently meet with stakeholders and have input sessions. Um, where folks have to drive into Boston, go to one Winter Street, let's say to DEP, to a, to a stakeholder meeting. To do that by video conference makes a lot of sense, where it isn't as essential for people physically to be in the same room. Very interesting. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you as well, as someone who's uh, been active for years on Beacon Hill, not just advocating for your clients, but for the lobbying profession and uh, your fellow lobbyists, uh, what did you make of the letter that uh, Speaker Mariano uh, sent to House lawmakers uh, regarding the House rules uh, and his decision to uh, postpone debate and to ask the Rules Committee in the House to look into how lawmakers interact with what he described as unregistered or vaguely affiliated advocates and coalitions. Uh, the speaker, the new speaker of the house suggesting that he's heard complaints from legislators uh, and he uh, advised that, uh, and this was reading from his letter, members and staff should be readily aware of who they are meeting with, which external groups comprise a coalition and how those groups are funded. Now, uh, a lot of people interpreted that not at a shot at people like you who come in uh, representing a specific client, but these uh, more nebulous coalitions. But I'm curious, uh, as someone who has worked in this field, um, what you thought of that letter and whether or not you uh, have seen what the speaker might've been talking about. You know, I found that very interesting. Uh, and, and I do think that there's something here to be looked at uh, you know that there's hundreds of uh, registered lobbyists, maybe a thousand. Um, I'm sure you know that the lobbying law requires us to register each year. It requires us to file disclosure reports twice a year. We have to 
disclose who our clients are. We have to disclose how much we're paid. We have to disclose the issues or legislation we're lobbying on. We have to disclose the position of our clients. Um, <clears throat> so there are few states, by the way, that regulate lobbyists uh, as strictly as we do here in Massachusetts. I might also add that lobbyists, of course, are limited uh, in how much they can make in terms of a political contribution to a maximum of $200. Um, you know, uh, in, in, in the past, there had been a, a proposal that lobbyists who enter the building should wear a badge uh, so that legislators would know, you know, that they're talking to a, a paid representative. I, I always found that kind of humorous because if a legislator doesn't know who I represent, then I'm not doing a very good job. And for those of us who are professionals are in the building every day, uh, and, and this is a career, um, <clears throat> you know, we're not looking to, to fool anyone or to trick anyone. In fact, you know, our credibility is absolutely essential. And you know this, Matt, often we have only a few minutes or a few seconds or something to convey a point of view or information to a legislator how, how much that weighs with that legislator depends on their sense of our credibility, our reputation. I mean, they know always that we're advocating for a point of view. They know that, they know who our clients are. If I tell them that I'm representing, you know, home builders, they understand that where that industry is coming from. Um, the speaker is getting at something that's broader, and this is obviously a phenomenon I think we've seen more over the past couple of years, where, where legislators have been, and I know this has, has, has happened this past campaign season, I'm not gonna mention any particular legislator, but where a legislator was invited to meet with constituents. They get outreach from, you know, they get an email or, or a phone call or something from a constituent. Would you be willing to meet with, you know, a neighborhood group or with some constituents via Zoom? Uh, and uh, so they agree to do that. Well, then they get on the Zoom and find that most of the individuals participating don't live in the district, aren't constituents. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was set up by maybe a constituent on behalf of some grassroots advocacy organization. Um, I can understand why that legislator uh, is concerned about that and feels somewhat deceived. You know, if I ask a legislator to come meet with um, the American Nurses Association or the Mass Psychological Association or, you know, name the client, um, they know <laughs> the group they're meeting with. If they come in person to that meeting or we come to the statehouse and they know that. Um, <clears throat> so, so there's something there that I understand is, is concerning. And this is not to say that there isn't an important place for grassroots citizen involvement and advocacy. I strongly believe in it, but there should be disclosure. There shouldn't be, a, a legislator should know uh, beforehand that in fact, they're meeting with a group that has a point of view or an interest group um, so that their policy making and the decisions are ones that, you know, are based on all that information. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what groups he has in mind, but I can tell you that I'm aware of that phenomenon. And um, that certainly has, has, has raised something to look at. How the rules can address that, I have no idea. Uh, because if these folks aren't registered, and again, remember, you don't have to register as a lobbyist unless, first of all, you're being paid for advocacy. And then, <clears throat> secondly, engage in lobbying activities. And that's defined in the statute. I won't go into that. And then thirdly, you have to have at least one communication, direct communication by you to that person, whether it's email, telephone call, in person, whatever. 
So of course, many of these folks in these grassroots organizations are obviously citizen volunteers, but behind them, there is an entity, an organization. And I presume the organization has some sort of budget, has some staff, some staff must be paid. They're engaging in clearly lobbying activities, and that's a good thing. And they're having a communication. So it seems to me they should be registered. Um, I often take issues, not with the State House News Service, because you guys just do such a great job. But let's say a major daily publication here in Massachusetts, which will refer to business advocates, lobbyists, as lobbyists. But then if it's some other group, environmental group, whatever it might be, those people who are paid to, to lobby are described as advocates. Well, you know, you can't have it both ways. If you're paid to advocate a point of view, if you're paid to advocate on policy, if you're paid to try to influence decision-making and regulations and legislation, then you should be registered with the lobbyist division of the Secretary of State. Um, so uh, that's all I can add. I, I don't know much more about what's I don't know the speaker's thinking. I only know what I read just as you did with the letter. But I do think that there's an interesting phenomenon that uh, certainly deserves taking, having uh, that examined, whether there's a rule that can be developed that is applicable or workable. I have no idea at this point. Well, with that, I will leave it there. Ben, I want to thank you for your time. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, I know that uh, it's been a challenge this past year for you, for us, for everyone who works on the Hill to, to, to do their work. And we all have a sort of symbiotic relationship at times, but it's, uh, it's nice to, uh, to see you here on Zoom and to connect. And uh, thank you for sharing your insight with our listeners and uh, good luck with uh, bill filings uh, and the upcoming budget. And hopefully we can uh, see you around the building soon. Thank you, Matt. And uh, State House News Service is such an essential service, not just to lobbyists, an essential service to the public. Is, if I can end with this, when I began my work on Beacon Hill in 1981, Ed King was governor, by the way. Um, you probably don't remember him. Um, <clears throat> Uh, all of the uh, daily regional newspapers had reporters in the state house. All of the major television stations had reporters in the state house. Um, <clears throat> today, without the state house news service, the public is aware of the important policy, lawmaking, regulatory uh, developments that affect their lives. For some reason, much of the media just wants to cover, you know, scandal. State house news service. That's so essential. Uh, and I'm sincere about that, Matt. As I mentioned, I go back to Helen and those who've been involved in the State House News Service. And uh, you're absolutely essential. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. State House Takeout is a production of the State House News Service. And for a daily fix of State House headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.